episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show with another fascinating guest uh, helping to create a better tomorrow on many different fronts. And, and today we're going to be uh, delving back into a sort of a fascinating intersection of topics, including uh, healthy aging, uh, the social determinants of health, and ultimately uh, intergenerational uh, collaboration. Uh, we're having the honor today of being joined by Donna Butts, who is the Executive Director of Generations United, uh, which is an organization with a mission to improve the lives of children, youth, and the elderly uh, through various intergenerational uh, collaborative programs, uh, public policies, and ultimately programs for the enduring benefit of all. Uh, and she's held this position since 1997. Uh, for more than 30 years, she has worked tirelessly to promote uh, the well-being of children, youth, and older adults through nonprofit organizations across the country and around the world. Uh, she began her career in the home state of uh, Oregon as a youth worker with the YWCA, where she worked one-on-one -on -one with teens and ultimately saw the positive effects of intergenerational programs firsthand. Uh, she has also held leadership positions with Covenant House, which is a, a New York-based international youth serving organization and the National 4-H Council, and has served as the Executive Director for the National Organization Adolescent Pregnancy Parenting Prevention uh, before taking the helm of Generations United. Uh, Donna received her undergraduate degree from uh, Merrill Hurst College and is a graduate of Stanford University's Executive Program for Nonprofit Leaders. Uh, she is a former chair of the Board of the International Consortium of Intergenerational Programs and serves on the board of the Journal for Intergenerational Relationships. Uh, was recently recognized, uh, actually three years in a row by the Nonprofit Times uh, as one of the, the top 50 most powerful and influential nonprofit executives in the nation. Uh, in 2015, she was named one of the top 50 influencers in aging by next Avenue. Uh, under her leadership, Generations United has received the uh, 2015 Eisner Prize for Excellence in Intergenerational Advocacy, and she was recently honored uh, with one of the 2017 International Federation for Family Development Awards. Uh, Donna Butts, thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invitation to talk with you today. And um, that was quite an introduction. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, I, I'd love to start off just by uh, handing the mic back to you for a little bit. Um, if you could uh, take us back a little bit in history, everything from sort of where you grew up to how you developed your interest in this space and, and a little bit on your journey on, you know, you've been, you've been it for 30 years now, which is amazing. Uh, talk about your passion for this and, and where it all started, if you would. Oh, I'd be delighted to, you know, it's, it's really sort of fun when I, when I think back, because I, when I was younger, um, I think about the people who supported me when I was a teenager and I always wanted to work with teenagers. And so when I was hired at the YWCA in Salem as their teen director, one of the programs I inherited, and this was 40 years ago, was a program called Senior Outreach. And that was a program where we um, worked with high school sociology students and paired them with uh, low-income, isolated older adults who were still in their own apartments. And they did weekly friendly visits for a semester. And so, of course, my passion was teenagers. I didn't know really anything about older adults. Um, I always loved my grandparents and the older adults I knew, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I considered my calling. But the first time I went out on a visit, I was so taken by how important and powerful that program was. 
I found that we had teenagers that skipped school except for the day they visited their senior. There were seniors that didn't get out of bed except for the day that their young visitor was coming. It gave them both purpose, that reason to show up, that reason to be there. And it really uh, drove home to me the power of connecting across generations. And so oftentimes it's those generations, those bookend generations that hold our society together that are really sort of left on the sidelines because they're too young to contribute or too old to contribute. When in fact, they're incredibly important members and vital members of our communities and neighborhoods every day. So one of the culminating events with that program was that we would have a potluck or a dinner uh, for the, the seniors and the students to, to come together. Uh, and one time that they decided to do something informally on their own, so they organized a picnic uh, and they organized, the students organized it for the older adults. And the older adults showed up and they had potato chips, cookies, and I think some pretzels for lunch. Uh, but what was wonderful was that we were able to get a picture that ran um, on the front page of the local paper. It was a beautiful color picture of a young man with an orange mohawk haircut and a black leather jacket. And he's reaching across the table to pat the hand of the older woman who he'd been visiting with for the last couple of months. And she had beautiful silver hair. And the title under the picture was, he may look a little strange, but he's such a nice boy. <laughs> and so what it really taught me again was that power of connecting generations. So I just went on about my life working on behalf of teenagers, but I never forgot it until about oh, over 20 years ago when I went to visit a wonderful um, gentleman named David Lederman, who used to be head of the Child Welfare League of America. And he was one of the founders of Generations United. And I was talking with him about what was next in my life and what I was thinking about. And he said, you know, Donner, I think we might have the perfect job for you. Um, and Generations United had been around for 10 years, but it had only just recently incorporated as a, a separate nonprofit organization. Um, and so I made the rounds of the, of the founders and was very fortunate that they offered me the position. So I started 23 years ago with $160,000 in the bank and two and a half people. Um, and basically the orders were sink or swim. And the issues were relevant then and even more relevant today. So I'm very grateful for the fact that we have a tremendous team and we've been able to make a difference in the world and continue to do so. Outstanding. And, and you know, what, you know, one of the things that, you know, I was reading through a lot of your materials before this and, you know, one of the obvious, the, the big trends uh, that we're seeing and you highlight this, uh, is multi-generational living is once again sort of coming back in America. It, it was a norm for a long time, then it declined for a while, and, and now we're seeing an uptick. And, and you've done a pretty extensive analysis on uh, all, the, all the benefits that come basically in, in living together in such a system. And, you know, you've, you talk about obviously uh, making it easier for family members to uh, continue in school or role in job training, some of the environmental benefits, but also, you know, obviously one of the things we talk about healthy aging a lot on the show and social determinants, the very important positive impacts, mental health, and physical health as well uh, via these bonds. Talk a little bit about some of the trends that you've been sort of monitoring over the last couple of decades in this space and, and specifically focus on this trend towards intergenerational living. You know, you're really right, Ira. There's a lot of positives about uh, families coming together and supporting each other. 
Um, what's really interesting uh, for us, we recently, um, after 10 years, were able to update a report we did in 2011 on multi-generational families and work with Harris to once again do a national survey of the families. And while we knew that 10 years ago, the, the numbers increased because of the recession, a lot of people speculated that the numbers would decrease as soon as the economy started doing better. Um, we, the, the numbers continued to increase. And what we knew is that families may have come together by need. They stayed together by choice. They found out that it worked, that it supported, whether it's the entire family or members of the family, whether it's emotionally with caregiving issues, with employment, financially, um, or just remembering their, their roots, their cultural histories and traditions. It really strengthened the families. So what surprised us when we were able to update that report this last year was back in 2011, uh, uh, on the national survey, 7% of the people that responded said they lived in multi-generational households. 10 years later, it was 26% of people. So that's like a 272% increase, it quadrupled. And again, one of the precipitating factors is something that's happening, which is the pandemic because I think it's um, about six out of 10 said they came together because of the pandemic. But what's really interesting is that it's over 70, over 72% say that they plan to continue to live together even after the pandemic. So they may have come together again by need and found that they were stronger together. They're staying together because they're finding out that there's incredible benefits and 98% of the families reported that they were able to live together successfully, not without stress. You know, there can be stress, there can be things that have to be worked out, and there are hints and, and things that the families have learned that help them be successful. But I think the thing that's really important for us as a country to remember, um, because when we started getting involved with this multi-generational family area, people would push back and say, oh, it's so sad. It's too bad, you know, people are supposed to be independent. We don't need each other. We're not interdependent. We can live alone. Um, and, and there's something that's wrong if our parents live with us or if our children come back or if we have extended family that live together and support each other. And so we were really the voice saying, no, it works for many families. And what we need to do is accept and support and celebrate the fact that families are coming together, they're supporting each other and they're helping each other. So that pushing against some of what people um, perceive as this, this uh, a social norm that really is not a norm, mm -hmm. that we should be independent and not, uh, not rely on each other and uh, uh, is the way of, we think of the future is for people to really realize more and more that healthy aging, healthy living, um, is, um, is an interdependent, uh, uh, something that we need to support. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, you know, another very interesting, uh, you know, part of your data there, uh, which I personally found very fascinating, um, under this topic of, uh, grand families or, or kinship families, it was another term for it, where you have, uh, children residing in a home being raised by grandparents, uh, and you number something all close to 8 million children across the country, and then about 2.5 million uh, grandparents reporting they're responsible, they have, have strong responsibilities for their grandchildren's needs. And you would think that, oh, this is obviously, it's hard, but at the same time, you're reporting that uh, the, the children are thriving and uh, 
here comes the purpose once again. This this you know this major issue that people at a certain age they lose purpose, they go downhill, and you've seen the benefit there. Talk just a little bit about the the topic of a grand family, if you would, and some of what you you look at in that domain. You're really right that there um, there are a lot of benefits, and that the children do thrive uh, in the care of relatives as opposed to if we put them in the foster care system and they shuffle around from family to family, uh, because the the relatives, grandparents, and other relatives are more likely to keep the children in the home, to provide them with roots, to provide them with continuity and consistency as opposed to a system. Um, I've always said that you can, you can age out of a system, but you never age out of a family. And so they provide an important service, but they also need support to be successful. So we can't just drop children in on, with older adults and think they're going to thrive because we need to be able to, to support the, the, the special needs, the unique needs, and the transition of those families. Um, grand families are another area that where we've seen the numbers increase in, in the country, but we've also been able to see a change in perception. We have founded our National Center on Grand Families over 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was a time when some of the headlines in the, in the media were things like country club grandmothers only take children in to get their TANF only child grant. Um, or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And why are these, why are we letting these people raise children again if they messed up the first time? Um, I love it when I was talking with a grandmother about that one day and she said, you know, they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Well, we don't throw those apples out. We make apple pie, applesauce, apple juice. You know, we still use and, and, and fulfill the potential of that apple or that child. And so grand families do, again, deserve support. They deserve recognition um, and uh, the policies uh, and, and social awareness and consciousness that, that helps them succeed. Because again, as you said, they report taking better care of themselves because the kids need them. Mm -hmm. And it keeps them alert. It keeps, it, it does um, so many, so many positives as well as stressful things for the families, which is why supports are important. And, and now coming to Generations United, you know, you mentioned that you came in, it was, it, it existed a little bit before you got there, you were tasked with uh, uh, building this, making it thrive. Uh, talk a little bit, if you would, just about the organization, sort of, um, you know, its funding, its backing, and a little bit of um, sort of what you decide, what you decide to do as as the uh, director, as, as the CEO. Uh, how do you, what do you do on it at any given day? What types of, because you know, you're involved in creating a lot of these, uh, you have the programs, but also the policy work. We, I guess we can focus on the programs initially. Um, what do you decide to do? How you set the priorities for the coming year? Uh, walk us through a little of that, if you would. Sure. Well, Generations United has been around for over 30 years now. And we really focus our work in a, in a few, three areas. And that's what really drives our work every day. It drives our, it's, a, it's our strategic plan. It's how we function. And I think one thing that's really important is, is we are not a large organization, but we have a big imprint and a big um, uh, footprint as far as what we're able to accomplish. I think because we are strategic about the areas that we work in. Mm -hmm. What's very important to us is we use an intergenerational lens on whatever we approach, however we approach it. We're not an aging organization. We're not a children's organization. Um, we have feet, 
tentacles, we have fingers, and we have members that, that, that are very focused on a single age group, but we are the intergenerational intersection organization. And that's what we elevate, that's what we promote, that's what we set the standards for. Um, so that, that where we focus our work, um, as we've been talking about, are grand families, grandparents and other relatives raising children, and multi-generational families, because that's a unique area that when we became involved in both of those issues, there really wasn't anybody else who was looking at it from that intergenerational perspective. Um, then there's intergenerational use of space and place, okay. which for us is intergenerational shared sites, or it's a park that's designed for older adults and children and families to be able to use. It might be co-locating an adult daycare with a childcare center, it might be building a nursery school on a senior housing. Um, it could be like the Swampscott, Massachusetts High School and Senior Center that were built together. So it's really, it's using space to connect generations and understanding that dollars go further when they're used to connect generations and serve multiple generations, which really strengthen our communities. So it's that use of space and place for all generations, not just, I get really tired when, when people who are um, oftentimes in the age-friendly city area will mm -hmm. say, well, you know, what, what's really helps to support a community being age-friendly is a curb cut. And that really helps. It's good for wheelchairs. It's good for strollers. And that's great. Um, it's good for wheelchairs. It's good for strollers. But that doesn't mean that who is in that wheelchair and who's in that stroller will ever meet each other, will ever talk to each other, will ever be on the same side of the street at the same time. So it's that intergenerational piece that I think is, is vital. And then the last area is high quality intergenerational programs and practices. And we're the ones that we do our global intergenerational conference in, uh, every two years. We have our programs of distinction designation, which is sort of the, the standard setter for intergenerational programs. Uh, we, we set those, that sort of gold standard as well as recognized programs that may not be able to achieve that, but they're still doing really good intergenerational work. But we're the ones that help to define the field, shine a light on the field um, and honor the work that's being done in communities around the country. Along those slides, you know, because you mentioned the um, sort of the healthy aging, the, the healthy uh, age-friendly cities and so forth. And I've spoken to people in the past that, at the World Health Organization involved in that program. I was just wondering, I, I, I know you're a U.S.-centric um, uh, organization. Are there uh, communities uh, in the United States that do a much better job of intergenerational programming today than others? And then are there... Uh, sort of models, hints that we get from other countries, um, whether that means in, in Japan or uh, in Latin America, wherever, I'm just, I'm pulling this out of the sky, but um, that have done an exceptional job of this that we need to do more in terms of mimicking here. Yes, we, we do focus most of our work in the US, but we're actually an, an international organization or have international colleagues. Um, we're an NGO with the UN, United Nations, and we're, very involved in, in um, helping to really, again, inject that intergenerational lens in, into the various work for family, for youth, for aging um, at, at, at the UN. So we are fortunate to have worked with a number of, of um, colleagues and countries that I think are really reaching and working to become age-friendly countries. Uh, Singapore, I think, is doing a very good job of, of really looking at, at um, healthy aging and healthy engagement. So they're building 
um, facilities like a shared site, like I mentioned to you, which mm -hmm. is senior living, child care, um, storefronts, but multi-generational living. Um, Scotland and Wales um, and Northern Ireland have had um, age um, friendly intergenerational initiatives where they've had a, a, a countrywide commission mm -hmm. um, that looks at the intergenerational potential and they set um, they set their their goals their their vision for being countries that engage all ages. Japan has been really fascinating to uh, to work with because they have as you know a very uh, a large aging population yep. and unlike the U.S. Um, Immigration has not been uh, uh, occurred or been uh, promoted or, or highly uh, um, engaged in, in Japan. So their population is aging even faster than our population is. And so they, they are, have been concerned about um, how we care for our aging population because of course, traditionally a family always cares for the elders in the family, but that family's now, um, needing to commute, needing to work long hours. So, so there's a, a lot that they're, they're looking at. So there, there are some wonderful people in Japan that have pioneered intergenerational approaches and intergenerational care. Uh, and they have a, um, some, some wonderful programs. So we can go around the globe and see um, some really strong holds for intergenerational work. Now in the US, um, we have in the past had a best intergenerational community designation, and that came out of our interest in the age-friendly work and wanting to make sure that, that the focus was on the intergenerational aspects. And so there are several cities we were fortunate to work with um, who strove, really strive to, to um, get that designation and to maintain that designation. But I think there's, there's a, the gold standard is San Diego County. Okay. And San Diego County for a long time has had a, a deep, deep commitment because of their elected officials and their leaders um, in government to um, make sure that age, that age friendly, healthy aging was a huge part of, of the San Diego culture. And so there the, the, the county has five intergenerational coordinators on staff. Okay. They each have part of the county that they're responsible for and they work together to make sure that all ages are engaged and they've got some wonderful, wonderful uh, programming underway. And, you know, you're very active, uh, of course, in, in, in the policy domain, uh, working in many different uh, areas that we, you know, we've touched on in terms of, um, you know, uh, bills to, to support grandparents raising grandchildren or the, the concepts we talked about, the kinship. Uh, concept and then um, things like foster care families. Um, uh, there is something in the in the current uh, strategic plan for uh, establishing an independent nonprofit national grand families assistance center. Uh, talk, you know, obviously you, you get to Washington and you, you, this is an issue that <laughs> spans all fifty states, uh, federal level as well. Um, what are some of the things that are most important to you, you know, looking with the current administration and so forth as you head to Washington uh, that you're, you know, most excited about uh, uh, pushing through with this, with this current uh, Congress and administration? You're right. The whole policy area is one that is uh, because we're located in Washington, D.C. And because we really were founded at a time when people were trying to pit the generations against each other, mm -hmm. saying, you know, you could only support older adults or you can only support children, you could, you could never support both. Yeah. Whereas in fact, 
it were it was really people trying to pit really the have-nots against each other for crumbs as opposed to really looking at where our country makes its investments and how we value our people and our populations. And so we were founded to really argue for a caring society, for one that, that, that did support its vulnerable and valuable populations. So our policy work, we have um, put a, um, a, a great deal into the area of grandparents raising grandchildren. We've been very successful with our partners. We, you know, we work very closely with a number of na other national organizations in um, getting, I think, some very important supports and recognition in place for grandparents raising grandchildren, uh, whether they be kinship navigator programs, which have, have provided about $20 million a year to states to set up a kinship navigator program in their state, which is the one-stop shopping uh, or the one-stop one referral source for, for grandparents raising grandchildren. Very, very important um, uh, development. The National Family Caregiver Support Program, where, um, which was originally designed for uh, the middle generation caring for aging parents. And we said, you know, oftentimes it's those older adults that are providing the care. They're not the givers of care. So we were able to get uh, grandparents included in the National Family Caregiver Support Program. There's currently a federal task force that's doing a review of federal agencies and policies uh, that was included in the Family First bill. And we're, we're very excited about the recommendations they'll be making to Congress. And then this last um, uh, stimulus go around, we were successful in getting some recognition and support um, for establishing a national center on kinship and grand family families. Um, so, so we've been able to work to, um, to really include supports, but it, we, don't, we don't stop there. Because to me, a part of the whole policy piece is that so much policy, especially for older adults, has been based on frail elderly and not on the fact that older adults are oftentimes healthy, contributing members of their community. So how do we enable and, and allow for them to contribute? And so we advocate, for example, in the Older Americans Act, um, there's shared sight language now in the Older Americans Act that encourages the shared use of space. There's um, language that encourages multi-generational and intergenerational programs. Mm -hmm. um, we've looked at education policy that, so that schools can be used to involve older adults, um, not just children. So we look at the we look at the policy and again use that intergenerational intersection or intergenerational lens to make recommendations on how the policy could be stronger um, if it's taking into consideration people across the the lifespan. Say a few words, if you would, about the Grand Voices Racial Equity Initiative. Uh, we were so, and, and continue to be very honored that um, the Kellogg Foundation has supported our work to really make sure um, that we, that we um, use a race equity lens as well as the child welfare system and policymakers have that, that, that race equity um, perspective when they're thinking about services and supports for grandparents raising grandchildren. So we were able to develop work with um, the, for example, the um, uh, National um, Indian Child Welfare Association. Mm -hmm. And we worked with them very closely to develop, to develop a toolkit for 
American Indian, uh, Native Alaskan grand families. So it helps to educate people who work directly with the families about the strengths of the cultures, about the strength of the um, extended family and the tradition of, of grand families. Um, and then we worked um, with other groups on developing um, a toolkit for African-American grand families. And we're currently in the middle of developing one for um, Latinx or Latino, Latina, grand, Hispanic grand families. So we're honored really to be able to partner with, um, with groups that are very focused on, um, on communities of color and be able to, um, to really elevate how important it is um, that we don't just think that every family is the same mm. um, and that honors the strengths of, and uniquenesses of our, our diverse population. And uh, we spoke earlier on about obviously COVID and the social isolation and, and, and sort of the, the negative effects there, hence the benefits of the intergenerational living, but at the same time, um, COVID has this other angle to it, of course, um, in terms of what happens when we get a lot of people together. Uh, you have a, uh, a very nice program, Grand Families COVID-19 Response Fund. Talk a little bit about uh, what was involved in, in, in organizing that. When COVID hit, of course, we were all told that younger and older people should separate. Um, that, uh, you know, we needed to protect older adults and so they shouldn't be near children. Well, that doesn't work if you're raising those children. Yep. Um, and it doesn't work if you're in a multi-generational family. Um, you know, some, some multi-generational households are large and they have a lot of space where people can separate, um, but a lot aren't. And so our work immediately became how, what are the supports? What are, what are the educational pieces that we can put in place um, that will help the families. And so we all went, as you remember, when we all shut down, we went from, you know, um, teaching people to, to wash their hands for at least 20, 20 you know, right. seconds to, you know, how often we should um, wipe everything down to, to learning more about the fact that COVID was, um, how COVID was, was trans, transmitted. Um, so, but as a, in the midst of all that, it also became very apparent that there are unique needs that and, and, and concerns and issues that the families faced. So we did try to educate, especially service providers in, in communities to deliver groceries, deliver medications, check in on the families. And in particular, um, the homeschooling, the education of the children was oftentimes more difficult because of lack of access to the internet or broadband, um, lack uh, older adults who were not as comfortable or familiar with technology. The family may only have um, a flip phone. Mm. Um, they may have a cell phone. The school may have checked out a device to the child, but you know, where's the signal? How do you use it? So we um, did a lot, there was a lot of education and, and support. And we were fortunate because of a couple of foundations um, who um, provided money so that we could directly make grants to the families and, and help them not, and they were small, you know, it could be that they just needed to be able to purchase technology. There was one family that had a broken window and winter was coming. They just needed to replace the window. Somebody else needed to have a door put on a bedroom because all of a sudden everybody was in the same house and they just needed a little bit of privacy. For some of them, it was, it was money to, for transportation to get them to doctor's appointments. It was food when they didn't have food. 
Um, there were a, a number of things. And so we continue, we have that, that response fund and we, one of the ways that we get it out is through what we call our grand voices network. Mm -hmm. And these are grandparents and other relatives that we've had the very good fortune of working with um, for several years. We have about grand voices in about 47 of the States and I believe it's 12 tribes. And so they're the ones that are connected with grandparents in their states and in their tribes and their communities. So we're able to get funding out through them uh, in particular to be able to get directly to the families. Outstanding. Um, looking at your, I mean, you have an extremely um, comprehensive staff, board of directors, uh, amazing list of strategic advisors and policy advisors. Um, obviously throughout the last 30 years of doing this, you have met a, a range of fascinating people in academia, uh, in government, in, in, in private uh, sector. Um, I want to, you know, Donna, let me give you the floor just for a little bit now to uh, talk about, obviously everyone's important, but if you want to mention, shout out to uh, some really key people in this process that have been instrumental as you've been running this for the last 30 years. Uh, as I said, I'd love to hand things back to you just to, to mention, shout out to anyone that you want uh, that has been really in, influential in, in helping you build and, and maintain what Generations United has become. That's a really kind question um, it's, um, or, or opportunity because uh, it's, it's wonderful to reflect back. I, I really do believe that we are very fortunate that at times people appear when we need them to appear. Uh, and our teachers come in, in all shapes, forms, and, um, and, and backgrounds. So, I mean, I remember when I was a kid in trouble when I was a teenager, and if there hadn't been the adults that intervened when they did, God knows where I would have ended up, you know, but my, my, force, my first um, mentor or guide was a gentleman named Roy Harine uh, when I worked at a teen center, and he just kept telling me whenever I would start to screw up, just remember you're one of my kids. Um, and that just kept me straight um, when I needed to be straight, but also learning to believe in myself and my abilities. Um, but that, you know, that's continued throughout my life, and there have been incredible people. When I came to Generations United, the person that stands out to me is the, the, uh, among the many uh, is a woman named Janet Saner, who was an incredible um, visionary and, and pioneer in the aging field, and she was probably... 80 when I met her and still very involved and very active. And I remember trailing her at conferences when we'd be someplace together. And by midnight, I'd be ready to go back to my room. And she would say, no, there's two more receptions we have to go to. And she would just make sure that I met everybody I needed to meet. And that there was always the question, what is it that you want to ask them? What is it that they can, how can they help Generations United? How can they help what the, the, the mission is that you're doing? Um, and she was just a, a, a fabulous, fabulous person to, to get to work with. John Rother, of course, was, who was, uh, used, uh, was chair of our board at Generations United for so many years, um, taught me so much about policy and um, perspective. Uh, so there have been, uh, you know, again, I could go on and on, but when I was thinking about this, I was remembering this quote that I, I used to love, and it was um, somebody coming upon their former professor. And what they said to this person was, you left me with this itch to mend the world, but you never taught me the art of living in it comfortably. <laughs> and I think that that is uh, so true about 
the mentors that I've had and then the mentor that I've tried to be. That's wonderful. That's a wonderful message. Uh, you know, Donna, this, is, this has been really fascinating, um, you know, because we don't touch on this topic as much as we should in terms of the social determinants and uh, obviously this uh, intergenerational context. And it's, um, you know, I, I really appreciate and take my hat off to not just you for running this organization, but for that amazing staff you have and really uh, thinking through these issues from from children to youth to the elderly. Uh, and it's just so extremely important and impressive uh, what you put together and wishing, really wishing you the best with all of this, moving it forward um, for, for everybody that's going to be listening to this particular episode uh, on our podcast or watching on the YouTube channel. Uh, you've been listening to Donna Butts, uh, Executive Director, Generations United, uh, moving forward with a mission to improve the lives of children, youth, and the elderly through intergenerational collaboration. Um, really fascinating story. Uh, Donna, once again, I want to thank you for taking the time to come talk to us for a little while about everything you're doing. Um, thank you, of course, for doing it. Uh, and as we say uh, in our show, thank you for helping to create a better tomorrow uh, through what you're doing. Um, it's, it's very inspirational. And, and just want to thank you again for, for taking the time to talk for us for a while. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it.